0: All right. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody who may be listening or uh, who might be live uh, when we drop this. But today we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, a topic that I think is going to be important uh, to a lot of the listener base that we would have, because we're going to go into a topic uh, that deals more along the lines of millennial cultural and uh, social uh, perceptions. Uh, from mainstream media and other generations regarding millennials specifically living at home and in the uh uh, in the real estate market so we all know that there's a ton of stuff we get blamed for you know the end of napkins and all kinds of crazy shit um but the the important thing that we're going to focus on today is specifically housing access to housing millennials living at home um why that may be what we think and uh what some of, the, uh, some of the data is around that. So, uh, you know, just to, to remind everybody, we, uh, we are here, and by we, I mean uh, myself, uh, Jay, Jordan, and uh, Austin is here with us. Jake going, is here this week. Um, again, nothing bad, nothing bad, but we, uh, we believe he'll be back with us next week. Uh, and he can actually go into detail uh, then about his absence
1: yeah so, I was told by my colleagues that uh, what I said last time was made it sound really really bad uh, I didn't take it that way my bad but uh, he is fine uh, There, there's nothing wrong it's just uh, something he's, he has to do so I want to apologize if I may have scared
0: anyone yeah you freaked out the community here right uh, so, okay. so tone it down calm down uh, but yeah, yeah, Jake's good, uh, and we we expect he should be uh, back with us on the show going into next week, but that's tentative. So, with that, let's go ahead and take a dive into it, and uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about uh, millennials. So, first off, to start, um, I am technically a millennial. Uh, Austin, are you are you a millennial or are you like early Gen Z?
1: Um, what are the Time strengths with that again.
0: So consensus seems to be like ninety-two to like ninety-four for uh, the millennial generation end, and between ninety-three and ninety seems uh, for the uh, the Gen Z start. Okay, so uh, I
1: guess you could call me a hybrid then. Okay, so, so there,
0: there's no definitive was- answer with that. Unfortunately. Huh. So all right. So we're we're at least representing half the millennial uh in this discussion. And it sounds like part millennial, part Gen Z here. Um for those who don't know, Austin's a little bit younger than I am, but we're pretty close in age.
1: So to be able to talk to each other and stand each other. It's great.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm the of the of the three of us in the group, I'm the old man. I'm I'm the oldest. But uh uh the thing that um I wanted to to discuss is, like, what what does that really mean to you? Like, millennial, Gen Z, like, we hear the term thrown around a lot, but the context in which it gets used, even, like, the older generations that have been kind of classifying and naming a lot of this stuff, uh, they don't really seem to, as a, as, a, as a generation out in the wild, they don't really seem to get, they'll throw millennial, I notice that, like, kids that are in college these days, and none of them would be actual millennials. So... I mean, what does that term mean to you specifically when you hear it, Austin?
1: Well, to me, uh, just going off it, millennial is someone that is born within the time frame that you specify, but it also just means someone that is not in tune with the ways that people from like the 80s grew up in. Uh, I believe it was fairly different. We were definitely introduced to things like the Internet and more technologically advanced, uh, I guess, things i I don't want to keep saying things, but objects like toys, uh hardware, stuff like that, so I think we're more in tune with it, at least uh, when it came to the stuff that we grew up
0: with so I think the uh, I think the general term you might be looking for, and this would be the very early stages, because granted, I mean we were kids in the nineties, right, so like this this as a concept didn't really exist back then, but iOt right like the Internet of things, um what was precluding? What would eventually become IoT was really getting its start, right? With, uh, with you know, the development of like interconnected communications. Uh, you know, like when I was a kid, uh, my dad had a pager. That was like the most amazing thing to me was that he could get a notification that somebody wanted to call him, and then he would have to find a payphone and uh, then go uh, call the number back that uh, that had paged him.
1: I actually do remember that because I think my dad had as well. <laughs> Being in the trades, you kind, I think you needed some kind of form of communication. I'm pretty sure that helped out a lot. I don't remember him using it a lot, but it was always usually in uh, either his work truck or work van or whatever he had at the time. But yeah, until he got a cell phone.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I mean, my by the time my, my dad got, he was the more, uh, between him and my mom, he was the more uh, technologically advanced one early on. Uh, not that that was what we would consider very advanced by today's standards, but like he got, he got his first cell phone, I want to say in like 2003, 2004 ish, maybe, maybe slightly earlier, but he got, of course, the the classic Nokia brick that everybody knows and loves. And, uh, you know, that was, that was like a, a wild piece of technology to me at the time, because growing up where I grew up and having the kind of, uh, financial background that my family had we didn't have like there was no personal computer in my house growing up like not even as a novelty it wasn't it wasn't something that you used when i was growing up and going to school nobody had technology like that uh you know typing class was something that you were taught because it would be a useful skill to draft like a word document windows 95 was still brand new tech and you know, we, we didn't even hit like Millennium Edition, any of that stuff had come out yet. There was no social media. There was none of this stuff. So for me, I grew up with a landline phone. There were two phones in the house, which even by those standards was kind of a, a little ritzy, I guess. But we had a phone upstairs, we had a phone downstairs, and that was it. And the extent of my understanding of being a millennial revolves around the idea of we grew up where that kind of like cutoff area was right where it's like we transitioned from nobody had this tech to very few people had the tech and most of them were wealthy and it was novelty. It wasn't used really a little bit in business. You might have computers, maybe people that were doing more STEM related stuff or design, maybe like the basic beginnings of email, but like my mom's job, uh, she actually had a typewriter. That I used to type at as a kid, when I would go visit her at work, and like so, my experience learning to type was on an, a typewriter, not a computer. So, you know, I learned how to get those skills in, and then transferred them to the computer as I got older. But like for me, just none of this tech was accessible when I was a child and when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I started hitting my teen and preteen years that this tech became ubiquitous. I mean, when I was leaving uh, like junior high. There was no iPhone. There was no, none of that stuff existed until I was nearly done with high school. So like for me, the whole concept of like the smartphone and all this other stuff was something that came way later in my life developmentally. So it it was nice because I got the experience and understanding of, you know, developing that tech and understanding how a lot of those shifts work and how the business models of today came to exist. But yeah, I think of millennial as somebody who just didn't grow up with that kind of stuff.
1: I do actually remember uh, a lot of that stuff. There was the um the iconic uh, internet noise for dial up oh, you had to connect to the uh,
0: internet, and taking was, taking like a whole day to download like a picture or a song or something. Yep, and then um if
1: someone got on the phone, then it would just disconnect. And there was always yelling or something along those lines. And then the time that actually uh, we got away from the phone line as an internet service was just mind boggling to me.
0: Yeah. It's weird. Like <laughs> to go off the phone specifically, like I was just visiting my parents for uh, Labor Day weekend. And uh, I was at, uh, I was at my mom's house and we were just kind of hanging out, not really doing anything. And our phone started ringing her house phone. Uh, Cause they still have a landline. And she just ignored it. (laughs) I was just like, your phones are again. She's just like, yeah, it's a landline. It's all garbage. And I laugh because I'm just like, that's, that's what we used to depend on. And we didn't have caller ID. Like none of those technologies were in our house. And it was just, it was just, it's wild to me now that it's at the point where they have caller ID. They have all this other crazy stuff and they just ignore the landline because it's always garbage calls. They only ever check their, their cell phones or smartphones. Uh And and I, like my uh, when i was out i think my mom and my dad were on their phones more than i was while i was like having dinner or breakfast with them or all this other stuff and i was laughing because i was like i'm like my generation gets blamed for being on their phones all the time but my parents are both boomers and they're uh, on their phones more than me oh, so I, I thought that was tabled. funny too all uh, right it's <laughs> oh my god so true I, so true I, I,
1: I do remember the um the one thing I was proud of at that time because I was I was way younger than you were when this was happening but in order to get a hold of your friends you had to remember their phone number. And so I think at yeah. the time I had at least a good 10 numbers down off the top of my head. The rest was written down somewhere, but like my close friends were always those 10 numbers or something like that. So I, and then now today I can't I can only remember like maybe I can remember my phone number and then maybe my mom and dad's phone number and that's it.
0: Yeah. I had like my, my closest family members, uh, uh, phone numbers. remembered. Um, I mean, like in my view, it's important to have like, you know, like parents, maybe like grandparents, siblings, whatever else, like, you know, people you got to stay connected to, but it's like, uh, any other number. Yeah. I, I don't even take the time to, to memorize it these days because, so much dependence goes into the phone and with cloud backups and all this other stuff. It's like the redundancy level is just so ridiculous that it's just, it's not something you have to think of anymore. Right. Uh, Like I used to have to think of like country codes. I had a, a couple of friends that moved out of country when I was younger and I'd be like, okay, I need to make a call to this person or call them back. And I'd be like, all right, the country code for this country. And I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I wouldn't even think twice about that. Like my phone would automatically input the country code and all that stuff now. So it's, it's really come a long way. It's wild.
1: I do remember one of my friends, he had a, he played uh games a lot. And, uh, he had a, he made a friend online and he lived in Germany and he showed me his phone number one time. It was some like astronomical big number that was just like, you actually had to dial that in. He's like, yeah, like to actually get on the phone with him if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wild how things have changed. And now you press a button on their name and that's it. <laughs> You're disconnected.
1: Yep. And it's just so much easier. And then we try to talk about this to anybody that's younger, like especially younger than you and younger than me. And they're like, wait, what now?
0: Yeah, so that's that's actually a really good point because I'm in another reason why, like, I guess I fall into that millennial category is the way my family's structured too. Because on uh, on my dad's side, I'm the oldest. Uh, By quite a bit. My next closest cousin in age is about seven years younger than I am. And uh, he's just finishing college. Um, He's looking for jobs right now. I'm actually, I've reached out to a few friends from Western and a couple other areas uh, that have actually majored in areas similar to him to try and help him find work. But, you know, I look at him and I look at uh, his younger sister and then my dad's youngest brother's kids and i kind of laughed at myself because i'm just like i'm like these these are the gen z kids these are definitely not millennials because they're even more in tune intuitively with technology than i was growing up oh, and seeing, seeing yeah seeing the understanding they have about some of the tech that they do as young as they do and remembering when i was little how much of a struggle it was because i still had to do things like go to the library and use like the carding system and identification of yeah, ISBNs the Dewey Decimal system. Inf- right. To oh, find info on, on computer books. I had to get books on computers and now they have Google and all this other stuff that they've grown up with. Um, just cause they're so much younger than I am. And the concrete stage of their development was like social media existed. Right. Social media was a thing by the time. any, I mean, two of them aren't even in high school yet. But by the time the older two got into high school, all the stuff existed. All the stuff was there and a part of it. So it's just it's crazy because I remember like YouTube coming into existence and Facebook and MySpace and all these novelties and Ask you
1: know, and Craigslist yeah, and all these yeah. other things. Like
0: and we we were cool because we had AOL. You know, it was like, oh, we had chat rooms in AOL and our parents were like, well, I don't understand any of this. And now <laughs> I'm looking at some of the stuff that they're doing for integration. And I'm like, like I, I'm able to understand it and still bridge the gap between like my parents' generation and the younger generation, which is nice because I'm not obsolete. But at the same time, it's like they're grasping stuff that just took me a lot longer to get to because it's just everything's so hyper speed now and so hyper advanced in terms of how we do stuff and communicate. And, ah, it's crazy. I just, I just can't even imagine when they get older and they have their own kids, how much faster they're going to be adopting tech and understanding tech. And it's, it's wild to me.
1: I also think that's a double-edged sword too, because their attention span to a lot of things like mine as well is uh, a lot shorter. Kind of adopted it to like, was like 30 seconds or so.
0: Yeah, that's that's one thing I I will say. Overall, it seems like they they do have shorter attention spans, but that's something. I mean, that's stuff you can train and that you can you can adjust, right? I mean, like I do things. There are some things in my life I still do manually, and when I say manually, like like books, right? I'll still physically buy some books and read them with like a light and. You know, I, I might read a book in bed or like at my table or at my desk or whatever else and it won't be on my my uh, my Kindle or whatever. But like the vast majority of books, I'm gonna read like a quick entertainment book or something, I'll load it up on the Kindle, right? And it's it's stimulating, it's like you got the blue light, you got all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but it's nice to kind of disconnect and I usually try and do that in my mornings. Like I try as hard as I can to before noon not engage with a whole bunch of my tech uh, unless it's work related or something. And I'll try to read books or, you know, go to the gym or whatever else it is and, and just disengage from it. And I think it's given me the ability to, when I am on that tech, be able to dedicate tons of time to a single task if I need to. So I haven't had as much of an issue, I guess, with the, uh, the attention span problem. Gotcha. But I feel like I'm, I'm actively mitigating that. So that could be why. Um, but specifically, I mean, you're not a doctor, so you don't know exactly, but yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm yeah. Disclaimer to anybody listening. I am no kind of medical professional of any kind. Don't listen to my medical advice or my uh, psychological advice. Uh, please seek out a professional. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get down to the nitty gritty of now that we've kind of talked a little about like our, our millennial experience and what we believe constitutes a millennial. Uh, let's take a look at the the housing market with millennials and specifically uh, some of the, the information we've been looking at since COVID. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, the big thing that we want to talk about here is uh, specifically an article I pulled from the Wall Street Journal was talking about millennials were helping to power this year's housing market rebound. And that uh, the generation that's been slow to enter the U.S. housing market is now accounting for more than half of all new home loans. So there's a couple of questions that I had on that. One, what do we think this means for the idea, like we see in the news all the time that millennials are lazy or entitled or uh, you know they feel like everything needs to be handed to them and that's why they've been living at home in such big numbers or living with their siblings in such big numbers. And uh, I put a question out there on social media and a few people actually responded to that as well. And almost all of them cited that financial issues were the reasons why they lived with a sibling or they lived with their parents or with friends. It wasn't because they didn't want to have their own spaces. It was because they're like, look, I literally can't afford to do things like buy a house. I can't afford to do things like have a family. I can't afford any of that stuff. And a lot of them have master's degrees and PhDs and are currently either out of work or in jobs that are way underpaying for the level of expertise that they have in their, in their areas of industry. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that's definitely something I can't relate necessarily as much on the end of pay. Like I, I get paid relatively well for what I do and um, I get treated pretty well uh, for, for my own job. But like, I know there's a lot of people in in those circumstances that have like decent educations and other things. And, they're not getting compensated for either the amount of job experience they have or the amount of skills training that they've gotten. I mean, what are your thoughts and opinions on kind of these perceptions versus realities of millennials being able to afford homes? Uh, I'll, well, first I'll
1: start off with your, um, ex, uh, the payment system anyway. It, to me, it, it feels like a lot of the older generations, or at least the jobs right now are, are, uh, requesting you to have almost perfect resumes or have perfect skills or uh, just on the job training that to me doesn't seem feasible with the age um, gap or not the age gap, but like the age that we are and when we're applying for these jobs. So it, it seems like they think that we just assume, that we just have those skills and expertise already locked down just because of, Oh, we went to the college and, Oh, we can pick it up because we were born in this time frame. At least that's how I see it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in my opinion, I would take the, that kind of same thought, but a little further. I think sure. a lot of it is that they're woefully unequipped to understand the kind of positions that they're asking for. um, I think a lot of the the individuals who might be posting up these job requests and postings, they look at like, okay, here's here's a market rate for what I'm paying for this kind of job, and they're not comparing necessarily like jobs to each other uh, in their in their requests, Uh, but they're also they're looking for a whole a whole set of skills that don't exist necessarily in one specialty group, right? Like they'll they'll look at a computer science degree. And somebody who has experience with uh, like IT help desk, and they'll be like, "Oh, great! Uh, you know, one, I'll pay you twenty dollars an hour to do advanced level programming, uh, along with help desk, uh, along with you know our server maintenance, uh, data center maintenance. Um, you know, why don't you come in here and also run cybersecurity options for us? And we'll take a look. Like they want a ton of different technical skills." and these people are not necessarily specialized to do IT help desk and advanced level programming and cloud engineering and like all these different skills that a company may be looking for and i i it's something i've noticed a lot in in um companies that are aware of what they're uh, they're hiring for uh you know like i think a lot of postings will look at like they'll they'll pull up from amazon right and they'll say Amazon wants these skill sets, this amount of time, Microsoft wants these skill sets, this amount of time. I feel like they kind of look to Silicon Valley for a lot of that. And they they then try to model a lot of the requests after, not realizing that the professionals at Google know what they're looking for. They know what kind of specialized skills they want. I think a lot of these people see, like, Google AdWords or something, and they, they're they just like, oh, this posting has these skills that they're seeking, and this posting has these skills that they're seeking, and these positions are all needed to make this company successful. So let's find somebody who can do that stuff. And it's like they don't realize that these are teams of people built up doing these skills with 10, 15 years' experience making – you know, Google doesn't post $15 an hour on their ad, right? They negotiate a contract with you based on the commensurate amount of experience you have and understand that you're joining a team. Mom and pop shop or middle, mid sized business that doesn't do anything with tech may not even have a CIO position. For those of you who don't know, CIO, that's chief information officer. Um, the uh, you know, a lot of these companies that are, you know, in smaller cities like where I'm at or uh, you know, middle, middle cities that may not be like the size of Chicago or LA or New York. They have, they have a lot of these midsize companies that they don't even know what the hell they're asking for. And so they're asking for way too much in these postings and the level of experience they want, the level of education they want for what they're willing to pay is absolutely unreasonable. It's absolute garbage. And, you know, I think part of that is either willful ignorance uh, or intentionally just kind of trying to scrape the bottom to see how many skill sets they can get as cheaply as possible. And I think those are really poor business practices. I'd,
1: I, to, I'd, 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 I'd agree with you on that one. Uh, for some people that might not know the tech industry, uh, what Jordan was uh, elaborating at, someone that's in, um, like say, cybersecurity or cloud infrastructure, it it's kind of like... Um, you may not know the difference, but the difference is kind of like um someone that uh for people that are like into music. Sure, they can all read music, but a wind instrument is completely different to a brass instrument and percussion. So that's kind of the difference that it is with that technical side. I Just for anyone that might have might need clarification on that. So that's why we aren't a that industry. You're not going to be able to find a one size fits all person for multiple roles.
0: Exactly. Just, yeah. Austin's example of music is perfect. You know, companies like Google have a whole orchestra, you know, for lack of a better term, in place to make the melody, to make the rhythm, to make the whole song come together. Uh, And a lot of small companies think that they can just hire somebody who has skills, uh, you know, beat skills, and uh, turn them into somebody who can make a, a John Williams masterpiece. So... Yeah, I mean, that's that's a problem I have, and I see it, and not just in IT, I mean, because I primarily work with IT companies and the IT industry for a while now. Um, it's something I've seen a lot of, but I know there's other industries, especially in academics right now with COVID, where people are, they're hurting for money, uh, and they have lots of skills up into the PhD range, uh, and they're just, they're underpaid, they're undervalued, the benefits they get are garbage. <laughs> And uh, I think that translates into their ability to afford a house and to have a family. And I, I find it funny that so many boomers seem to scratch their heads when they talk about this. And I'm like, it's because you don't understand. You've never, you've never been in this kind of position. And when they'll make comparisons to talk about, well, when I was young, you know, I didn't make a ton of money. It's like, yeah, but when you were young, when my parents were young in the uh, in the the late 60s, early 70s the buying power that you had on minimum wage was far and beyond what the buying power is of minimum wage today, regardless of the fact that minimum wage in 1970 was $4 and now it's hovering around eight. I think it's still seven twenty-five uh, federally, but I mean, the, the amount of rent expense, mortgage expense, food expense, utility expense, all of that has risen over the last 40, 50 years. And minimum wage, commensurately to its its buying power, is not the same. I saw a stat that said four dollars in nineteen seventy as a minimum wage had the equivalent buying power of twenty three dollars an hour now.
1: That's that's yeah, it's not, that's mind boggling.
0: That's a massive disparity in buying power. So like my parents could have gone to college on a summer income. They could have just taken those three months, done a menial minimum wage job, and been able to afford their community college education easily, and had relatively good expectations of being able to pay for a lot, if not all, of their uh, four-year schooling, and then also had good expectations of getting into a decent job. Most people still don't have bachelor's or master's or higher degrees today but yet the bachelor's degree has turned into this prereq for jobs that don't require bachelor's level education. And, you know, I mean, kids are being told on the one hand, well, you know, cost of school is high. You shouldn't go to school for that. But at the same time, they can't even get an entry level job without a BA or a BS, unless they have eight to 10 years of experience to show in place of it, which is absolutely insane. So yeah, I, yeah. I think one of the main reasons that we can't get into, into the housing market stems from the way the job market is structured and organized right now, the way applications are set, the kind of expectations that are put on graduates. You know what I mean? Nobody, nobody with a master's degree, I don't care what industry, I don't care what industry you work in. I'll argue with anybody on this. Should be making $15 an hour no master's degree graduate should be making and i'm not saying they shouldn't be making 15 as in that's too much i'm saying that's far too little far too little no master's degree graduate should be making 15 an hour that's absolute garbage and if a company's offering you that anybody listening tell them to fuck themselves tell them you're done i don't want to have this conversation anymore I'd better be getting six months of vacation a year if you're going to pay me $15 an hour. Get out of here with that trash. That's unbelievable. You're worth more than that. Find somebody who's willing to pay you what you're worth. It's interesting you say that because
1: I I did a little looking into, and my my mother is part of the uh, Department of Labor. So when it comes to things outside of college education, so primarily trade and trade programs, they're doing far better with mm-hmm. the return and investment of the individuals, and the fact that we're not celebrating that or actually bringing that to uh, to the front is very alarming.
0: Not only not only are they having more success and making more money, there's more need. We actually mm-hmm. have a, a huge lack of people in the trades right now.
1: Uh, I think and, um, my, the last time I talked to my mom about this, I believe it was uh, there's about five million positions that need to be filled as of, I think, by 2021,
0: if not this year. I'm actually kind of surprised if that's if that's the only estimate I would have assumed higher. Right. Personally. But I mean, this was I also, don't know. The I don't right, though
1: I think this was about a year ago or so when we talked about this subject, but yeah, no, it's,
0: I wouldn't be surprised if right now with Corona, it's even higher, but still 5 million is a huge shortage.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And, and the fact is a lot of my friends that went into the trades or got into a program like that, they have houses, they have their own place. They are financially independent and I haven't seen them worry about, I don't think
0: anything. Yeah. And well, and also if things go to pot, it's really good to have, an actual skill set that you can fall back on, right? I mean, the way I've looked at college, like I knew for what I wanted to get into, I needed that extra education. I need To make the kind of money I wanted to make, I knew that I needed to put myself into a position to do a degree path program, take it as, as far as I could go, and utilize that as a way to work in the field. And then eventually I wanted to go back in and teach. I'd like to transition that into a teaching position uh, when I get older, but it's one of those things where not every job requires that. And again, like a lot of the postings that people are asking for, like I've seen entry level sales positions where they're like, we want a, a BA or a BS in business administration. And I'm like, are you planning on making this person a C level? Why do you need them to have a BA in business administration? You can teach them. Sales skills are mostly social and networking skills that you do not need a college degree for. And most of the money comes from the relationships they make, not the math finance class they took junior year. So there's a lot of, and I see a lot of that with like, especially entry level positions, but they're not technical jobs. They're not STEM related. They're not, like if you're going into IT you need to have a certain measure of certification or understanding because there's technical aspects of the job. If you're going to be a sales professional or you're going to be in hospitality or something like that, yeah, it's it's maybe good to have like some community college or something, but you don't need a 4-year degree to get into an entry level like that or if you don't have the degree have 10 years of experience. That that's an unreasonable expectation and if you're going to put those kinds of expectations on people understand that they have to invest a lot of money up front to get that done these days. And you need to pay them commensurately so that they can afford to pay off their debts in a reasonable amount of time. So, you know, if that's not a concession you as a business can make, I think you need to reevaluate where you're looking for a position uh, and the, the level of skill you actually need to fill a spot and you need to, not just cookie cutter, your template, everybody needs a degree, everybody, whatever, actually put some effort into making your recruiters customize their templates. That's what you pay them to do. So make sure that HR is on the ball in terms of the expectations and the job, uh, the job requester is as well. And I think, um, I think we'll see a huge turnaround in the financial prospects of millennials, but Let's tackle a little bit of the idea of culture. So I saw something from MSNBC that said that 39% of younger millennials, which would be us, basically, I'm assuming younger millennials means millennials born between probably like 89 and 92, but 39% say that the recession has driven them back home uh, from COVID. So, I mean, I think of 39%, that's nearly four in 10 millennials that were polled here, uh-huh. said that they're living back home because of COVID strain uh, related to either losing their jobs or finances. And these are millennials who are 24 to 29 years old. So truly the youngest of the millennial generation,
1: right? Right. So, it, but and that's just, there's so many things at play with that as well, but.
0: Right, right. And I wouldn't even say somebody 24 these days could be described as a millennial. I think that's far too low of a barrier, but that's just my opinion. Um, As far as as, as COVID's impact, I mean, they got stats here that are like 82% of millennials say they don't want to rely on their parents financially. So why do I see a presentation in the news and in, in, in media that makes it seem like we're killing industries and we're doing it willfully and we're like, we're the bad guy buying homes because we'd rather just live off mom and dad's expense. Like the data is not showing me that. And this is only one source. There's, I looked at Pew research center had similar numbers saying the exact same thing that these millennials, they want homes. A lot of them want kids. They want, they want to have a whole bunch of the same stuff that their parents did but they're financially either insecure or unsure of their ability to be able to provide those types of things. So I'll say this much. If we're going to talk culturally, millennials seem to be responsible. I'm not hearing a whole lot of that said about millennials. Right? They're actually, they want this stuff. I feel like my parents' generation, they'd have just done it. Fuck the consequences. They'd have just done it. I feel like a lot of us are more cognizant of the realities of like a lot of us went through the oh eight recession. We're going through this recession now. I remember the dot com bust of the early two thousands. That had people freaking out y two k all that garbage with the turn from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand. I remember all that shit. and I mean, yeah, I feel like we've been we've been raised to understand and distrust the institutions that are in place because we've seen them fail so many times and there has been no effort to instill repercussions on business or on industry, even even the government itself. A lot of these people that were in office in 2000 are still in office today. I've been seeing Nancy Pelosi Just not not to call out Democrats or Republicans specifically, I think they're both having their issues, but specifically Nancy Pelosi, I've seen hanging around government since at least I was a child. And I know she was involved in her youth during the Reagan administration and earlier. Her family's been heavily involved. The Trumps, I mean, like, so many of these, these families, these dynasties, these individuals have been around for decades. And they failed us time and time again. And yet our parents' generations keep seeming to vote them in. Our generation doesn't seem to vote at all. Very little. And we just kind of allow these institutions to continue to screw us. I I don't understand what the expectation is supposed to be. I mean, if you don't have an alternative to get paid well, if you're not going to vote out the people that continue to fuck you, what are you supposed to do i mean we rely on boomers who show up to the polls in huge numbers to make a lot of decisions for us i mean i feel like some of the blame is on us as a generation as well for not coming out and combating them at the polling stations to vote in our own interests
1: all right that was a long one uh start out with my my thoughts on the whole um our generation moving back home, but not wanting to. I, I think at least right now with the whole recession going on, it shows a lot of people that they probably don't know how to be financially responsible. At least it might be a way up call for a lot of them. And they are forced to move back home. And, and like you said, they don't want to, but they're, they have to. and, it could be something on the parents' part for not teaching them finance, financial responsibility. It could be on their part because they're so used to living a uh, do-it-now lifestyle and worry about it later kind of thing. But they, to me, I, f- I feel like this is a wake-up call that we probably did need, at least in our generation, because... You, uh, you, you told me specifically that you have friends that are living way over their means right now and are just riding along day by day kind of thing, even though they have really well-paying jobs and shouldn't really be in this situation. But they continually put themselves in it because they can't seem to give
0: it up. Yeah, I mean, that's that to me is a different category. Okay. Because these are people, those are people that are, one, I think they're doing the wrong thing too, right? They're Mm -hmm. blowing their money on all kinds of garbage. Living above your means is not something I think you should ever be doing, right? Right. But at the same time, these are people who are making enough money to afford to be able to live above their means in the first place. I think the target here, like none of my friends that are living above their means and are making that kind of money are living at home right now in COVID. Mm -hmm. None of them are without a job right now during COVID. None of them have obligations that they can't meet during COVID, right? I'm specifically looking at those in our generation, apparently four in 10, based on the information here, who can't afford at all even if they were to maximize their means to move out, right? Just to, to okay. spend at the at the upper limit of their income wouldn't even make a difference in their ability to afford financial independence. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where like, everything I do is within my means, and I work very hard to keep a good budget. I work very hard to make sure that I'm not spending a ton of money above and beyond my costs. And I do that by keeping my costs low. I live in a, in a more affordable place than I could potentially afford based on how much I make. All that stuff is is important to consider and should be something that I think any reasonable and financially responsible person is going to do, right? But I don't think that's what's holding these people back in this circumstance. I think what's holding these people back is the fact that they they don't make enough to even save. They don't make enough to put away. Um, and there's been some changes and transitions in that as well. I mean, we have one source that says, let me pull it up. But we have one source that talks about here how millennials have noticed that as Corona hit, there's been an inverse in their ability to afford homes because they're not spending money going out, they're not spending money on other kinds of trivial things, right? Like maybe going to concerts or whatever else, going out to the bar, buying alcohol is a big expense that people said, yeah, I mean, I never bought alcohol at home. I would only buy it when I went out with friends. I would go out with friends multiple times a week. Now I'm not buying alcohol. I'm saving a ton of money. And those are definitely improvements that people notice, but those are things you can also do outside of COVID, right? Those are things that you can take into consideration whether it's the middle of July in 2019 or it's the middle of December in 2010. Like, it it doesn't matter. But the the issue here is for people who are making subsistence living incomes and they're getting little to no benefits and whatever benefits they may be getting are astronomically priced. I mean, if you can't afford to save for a house, you're not going to get a house. If you can't afford to pay for home insurance, on top of a mortgage, on top of potential HOA fees, on top of taxes, you can't get a house. I mean, you need to have certain levels of income and security to just be able to make these baseline purchases in the first place. And a lot of millennials don't seem to be getting it. Almost half of us aren't getting it. Uh, and I hope I hope the number the numbers are more accurate at four over what I would be thinking they are, which is probably closer to six in my opinion. But um, you know, these, these, these polls only take what they can get as far as data goes. So, you know, it's just one of those things where I feel like a lot of the issue is one expectations in pay and benefits from, from uh, workplaces. And I think a lot of that is related to an issue I'd like to, dive deeply into in another episode around like startup culture and the startup culture mentality uh, and what that uh, entails for workers. But just the idea that so many people who are of the age where their parents had children, where their parents had homes are not able to afford the same situation is, is a serious reflection on a failure of the economic system and of to to describe it as a social or cultural issue among millennials is a, a real gross negligence, I think. And we shouldn't describe it that way. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your, your thoughts are on that, but for me, it's interesting to note to a lot of the States. So I think another area, another area of contention here is where you live in the country. And I think that's an important spot that we should, uh, Focus on for a second. Because I've noticed that the places where the millennials uh, seem to live at home the most are states that have considerably higher housing costs, which once again backs up the reasoning that financial status and security means a lot more than an entitlement culture. And the idea is that, you know, states like Connecticut, New York, Florida, um, uh, California. I mean, I believe all of those are top five states for housing costs, but I mean, like the, the rental costs in New York, I think it was around, uh, like $4,000 for an average. And in San Francisco, it was even higher. I think it was around 5,000, maybe six. I'd, I'd have to check the numbers again. We're talking like two bedroom apartment size dwellings. And when I say apartment size, I'm going to say anywhere between 500 and 1,000 square feet. That's crazy expensive to me. Four to five thousand dollars. I mean, it's no wonder. Even even with a full time job making good money, there's no way I could sustainably pay five grand a month every month with additional expenses, costs, insurance, all that all that goes into maintaining a place, food um there's no way i could afford that in one of those cities i mean you're in you're in salt lake how would you say the uh or uh north of salt lake uh how would you say the the expense ratios are there uh
1: so it differs from area to area but it's it's not that bad outside the city itself and i mean the commute is like any other commute you're gonna have your Rush hours and whatnot, but otherwise, no. It's uh, um, by yourself, I'd say like an average good apartment that you were describing is around a thousand dollars or so, give or take maybe fifteen hundred. And then of course, if you get like a two bedroom with someone else, then it's it's halved. So like you're I was paying I think like five hundred at the at my last place I was at with a with a roommate. So I mean, it that was a good way to save money and. Otherwise like uh there are some places downtown I think it's like for an entire um penthouse suite I think it was like going for like 4 million plus and that was like a 4 bedroom 4 bath. So it and then but then you get into like the big um suburbs that are for some reason higher uh costs just because I it's not really the location because a lot of the locations around here are nice just because we do have the mountains, but I, I think it's just because either it's the neighborhood or the type of people that live there or the association with it. But they're, um, they're upwards of maybe a couple extra hundred thousand on top of like a normal asking price for a home of that size in like a different area, like maybe two, two miles in a different direction. So it, it, I mean, yeah, it is fairly cheap out here, which is nice, but the prices are going up just like they were in um Colorado.
0: Yeah, I've noticed the uh, the price ranges have changed here in uh, Madison as well. The um the interesting thing I've noted is that the the materials, the building size, and uh, like square footage. When I say building size don't seem to be again like minimum wage (laughs) they don't seem to be going up in terms of quality or materials or anything like that for the increase the inverse increase in costs so a lot of new home construction they're cookie cutter homes right i mean like a lot of suburban uh, designs are that i'm seeing build up in the northern and kind of western parts of of the uh the city area but they're charging similar prices, three, four hundred plus thousand dollars for homes that are continually getting smaller. I'm seeing like fifteen to two thousand square feet houses that you're adding up the mortgage. You're adding up some of them have HOA fees, some of them don't, but you're adding up the mortgages, the HOA fees, the uh, the taxes, and the materials, I'm looking at the houses and I'm like, well, I mean, if I'm gonna be paying that much into a house at that size, everything better be state of the art, technology wise. I mean, I better have the best in-class energy efficiency windows and and uh you know, flooring and framing and exteriors and I'm looking at the materials and a lot of things going into these homes and I'm just like, that's that's not really high quality. Uh, you know, or, or I'm calling and asking questions, you know, is this, is this just a bunch of two by fours kind of nailed together? Or is this like, is this a quality constructed home? And a lot of the construction techniques, a lot of the on-site building, even the yards that they get, uh, or the the land which they're built on, you know, are you, are you on a slope? Do you have neighbor's water running off into your yard that you're going to have to worry about figuring out a way to drain? All these additional costs and expenses that would come along that they don't seem to either care about or make a consideration on the way they're just throwing up all these houses. Um, it's not reflecting any improvement in quality, and in some respects, a degradation of quality over some of the older, larger homes. And they're asking for similar prices. And it, it's another thing, too, where I feel like millennials, in a, in a day and age where we have more access to information more ability to compare choices in the cities that we live in, the companies we work at. We need to really be encouraging people in our generation to stand up, take the kind of stand that people take a stand for when they cancel celebrities or other people like that. I mean, I see people fly up on Twitter for things that I would consider to be in many cases petty rather than looking into the industries that they are so heavily impacted in, like their pay, their homes, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that they, they want or they say they want, but they don't put any effort into understanding and learning about. And then they get they get dicked around, they get screwed or they have to live at home. And then uh, on, on the one hand, I feel like it's a matter of ignorance on our part and it's our fault for that. But on the other hand, you know, it, it's a matter of ignorance and willful ignorance in some cases of the older generations or business owners or you know, uh, just the generations above us that kind of control things in allowing us to be screwed. And I I feel like we need to take responsibility for looking into these types of things. And I've been able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that have hit a lot of my friends in terms of not being able to get good paying jobs or not being able to do this, that, and the other, because I've been taking into account other things. I'm you know, I, I don't think about something once I hit that stage. I, I try and think a stage or two ahead. And that's saved me in a lot of areas. And I feel like that's an area where we could be better educating uh, other young people like ourselves and hopefully forcing them to then make demands of their employers, of people constructing homes, of their government, uh, to give them a, a more equitable hand in uh, helping to run the country, their locality, and and building their their lives and economies up. Interesting.
1: So would you say it's actually starting to happen or are we just at the mercy of just the people in charge at the moment?
0: So based on some of the information that I'm seeing in the news here around the The industry's n- not necessarily real estate itself yet, though it may be – it may be, I feel like the, the COVID uptick is a slight uptick. I don't think it's an indication of a long-term trend yet. Hopefully, it could result in some of that. But it's nice to see an uptick, at least in younger uh, individuals and families, being able to afford homes. It's always good to see, but I'm noticing that there's there's changes in the industries that seem to be surrounding the problem industries that are kind of starting to cater more towards that millennial group. Now that millennials are, as a generation, larger than boomers in terms of total numbers, it's I think it's it's more of an important shift starting to make its way. But I think it's going to be one that's really hard fought in terms of the fact that, one, Boomers are living a lot longer than any other generation has lived uh, in a a long time, if ever. And the amount of money that it's going to take to keep those boomers going, to keep retirement systems flowing, pensions flowing, to get a, a... vastly underrepresented millennial workforce to be able to pay for and afford that even with Gen Z and Gen X, it's going to be really hard to to make those kinds of costs. So there's changes and transitions and things like automation, which I know is kind of a hot button topic for a lot of people in terms of job losses, but I think that's also kind of an area around all this that's necessary and it it needs to have increases because we need more robots and automated technology just to help us take care of the sheer amount of sick boomers we're going to have in the next 10, 15 years. But as that happens and more people transition out, I think we'll start seeing a shift into millennials having more equity and more influence in uh, what's going on with government. The problem is is, I think that's way too late to see millennials start getting into that in their late 30s or 40s. The oldest of us in the millennial group are already in our late 30s and 40s, right? I mean, the youngest of us were in our late 20s. Uh-huh. But, but as a generation, getting the kind of stuff that we're trying to get that our parents had in their early 20s, we're already 10, 20 years behind. So no, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's fast enough. And I don't think it's enough of a correction, and it needs to be corrected much quicker than it does. Uh, so I'm hoping, and I'm seeing a lot of people moving towards electing people that are more in line with some of the millennial values uh, in Congress and things like that. But I mean, there's going to have to be a much quicker shift, much faster. Uh, it's going to take kicking a lot of the, the older, older representatives and congressmen and women. Senators, uh, local politicians out of office much faster. I think a political shift is the only thing that would speed this process up. So
1: ultimately, we are going to have to actually start doing something. We can't.
0: So I I think so. If we want to see these kinds of benefits before we're nearing the end of our working lives, Uh uh, if we see them at all, uh, yeah, we're going to have to do something sooner rather than later. I do see Absolutely.
1: a p- I, it's not really a problem with that, it's just a problem in general. But I think with the way and the problems you were describing throughout this episode, I see a lot of people that they just either they don't have time or they don't want to invest the time into as you were saying, elect these officials or um turning over a new leaf to getting these people out. And I, I I could be wrong, but I just from what I've seen, I haven't seen much people in our generation, at least around here, um, invested into uh, future causes or like looking towards the future. It's more of a in the here and now thing. And I get that because they're still just trying to get to a point to where they're actually comfortable. So, I mean, that's a problem I see, and I, and I could be wrong.
0: No, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think short-sightedness is kind of along the lines of what you were getting at. And, yeah. you know, the, the kind of near-term, short-term gratification is a huge problem, uh, especially with with youth in general throughout history. But I feel like even today, with so many disparate sources of information like there there's a lot of ways for us to get more informed than ever but there's a lot of ways for us to get more bogged down than ever too by just the sheer information overload mindlessly searching through like youtube videos or or through facebook or whatever else blasting you know your entire day on a game when same time Uh, You cut out. I don't think it's an excuse anymore. You cut out. Uh, Back in the day, and I mean, once again, going back to, you know, being a millennial, growing up as a kid, knowing how much harder it was to get information together for like a report. I mean, I couldn't get all the sources I wanted in the world at the touch of my fingertips. You know, it, it took physically being able to get to a library, hoping your library had those resources, maybe having those resources shipped in from a bigger library that could have been halfway across the country all kinds of stuff went into being able to properly research and properly vet information uh, back in the day that required you to put more effort into the vetting process itself. Uh, And there just, there just wasn't the kind of databasing that we have. But nowadays there are tons of people, especially with the rise of things like YouTube, there are tons of personalities that follow stuff like politics all day long. They follow home construction. All day long, they follow finance and saving and cost-cutting methods and couponing and all kinds of crazy topics all day long. You can find the stuff anywhere, from fitness to mental health to physical health, whatever you want. And with a little bit of vetting, with a little bit of cross-referencing, you can identify much more reputable sources based on user review, based on cross comparison, based on results, I mean, that people have. It's just there's so much more information flowing that you can weed through the garbage uh in a reasonable amount of time if you have any kind of tech savvy at all. And there's even people who show you how to weed through garbage information. So it's just it's just not an excuse. And if you don't have the time necessarily to research you at least have the time to follow a handful of people who do put in the work and put in that effort and then do the one thing you need to do which is show up on voting day to your local election show up on voting day to your your national election i mean you know and not everybody has that luxury especially with states pushing for things like voter id stuff and you know the information we have right now on mail in ballots and all the garbage going on with the post office and all that stuff but it's still it's still easier than it has been in the past and we still have the obligation to do whatever we can as a group i mean it's not like it's not like we have to galvanize 100% of the generation like we only need modest increases Of people participating and being aware and showing brands and companies what their values are and fighting for that by doing things like not buying their stuff if it means when the new Jordans come out if you disagree with Nike's policies you don't buy them you just don't do it there's nothing forcing you to get that so you know there's there's a whole lot of ways that we can combat the stuff Uh, but I feel like as a generation we need to We need to speak more with our dollars and more with our votes than we have been. Uh, And I I think for sure, doing things like going for jobs specifically, going on Glassdoor, you can go anonymously on a website like that. Shred your company. if If they have garbage practices, if they pay like shit, if they treat you like trash, if they make a bunch of promises up front on benefits or whatever else and they don't follow through, leadership's bad that's what those sites exist for is to give people a real insight into what it's like to be with a company, work with a company, impact the recruitment, impact their bottom line. And it'll, it'll force top leadership to make some kind of reassessment. Well said, well said. So, uh, I mean, any final thoughts on this, Austin? Yeah.
1: um, I think what you said uh, throughout this episode, I've touched on a lot of things. Um, I think, Ultimately, it's going to be an uphill battle for us uh, just as a generation. COVID is definitely playing a big part in it right now. But even if it wasn't here, we definitely still would need to get our act together and actually participate in the world as a whole instead of just being it all about me, me, me. Yeah, that's that's an
0: interesting that's an interesting thought. I mean, there is. There's a large degree of uh, I, I think the the idea of me 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 is it's important, but at the same time I also feel like as a, as a generation too, uh, millennials are less me 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 and more us 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 than uh, boomers for sure, Gen Xers for sure, possibly Gen Z. I think they still have yet to come into their own in terms of the data and the way that they formulate their views and such. But I feel like I feel like we are a lot less me me me. To be honest, I feel like we're a lot less selfish as a whole. You know you're gonna have different examples and anecdotes in in your own life for sure, but uh, I think I feel like the data shows that pretty clearly we're not uh, we're less self-centered than most other generations. and I think that's part of what I was trying to trying to communicate in in this this podcast is that we're more about the the equity of it and just kind of you know fairness and fair do for a lot of different areas in life. You know, I, I don't think the idea is to regress from what your parents had. The idea is to progress. And I think that a lot of mistakes have been made at the top levels and with the powers that be and the generations that be in power right now on that end. So I think it's time for us to step up and start making demands of those changes and to start doing that with, again, our votes and our dollars. So. Uh, I mean, yeah, my my final thoughts really circulate around the idea that I think this is something we could change. Um, I think it won't be easy for sure, but we need to get we need to get enough people to understand where where their head should be at going forward on these on these topics. You know, not just on everything, but just on these topics specifically, if they are serious about wanting financial independence and wanting to have homes and families, there's things we have to do to ensure that that happens. So, you know, I hope that uh, the people who listen uh, share their thoughts and feelings on it. I hope they hit us up uh, on Twitter and social media, and and I hope we get some uh, feedback on this. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Appreciate you all joining us on this, and uh, we'll catch you. See you guys in the next one.